Father in heaven, we want to thank you that we could be here today. Thank you for in your providence that uh, you've led us here. And I pray that all of us will learn together how we can be effective spokespeople for you. We can also lift up the hands of our pastors and elders and that you would lead a mighty revival in our church and many people into this true faith in these last days. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. I'll say, okay, so the gospel challenge, I really believe that there are, there's a, this is a time for true revival within the Seventh-day Adventist church. Do you believe that? Amen. And I believe a true revival is taking place. I believe the Holy Spirit is beginning to be poured out. Uh, why do I believe that? I believe we're living in the shaking. And when you see people leave the church and various heresies come into the church, that's not an evidence to be discouraged. It's an evidence to be encouraged in the Lord because you know that the time is drawing near for Jesus to come. I also believe, whether you would share with this or not, and I don't want you to misunderstand this, but I believe the Lord is preparing for the Adventist church to have a great influx of members. As some people are being shaken out, Ellen White herself said many more, and this is my terminology today, are going to be brought in, going to be shaken in, if you please. Uh, and, and there's some true revivals going on out there. And maybe, maybe it was one of these pastors, uh, he, he had a burden on his heart that 20,000 ministers in North America would begin asking through appeals in their churches for decisions for Christ every single week. And I thought, you know, why not? Why, why wouldn't we do this within the context of the Seventh-day Adventist church? I've heard many, many sermons through the years. I've given a number of them myself where the sermon probably wasn't too bad. In fact, it may have been an excellent sermon. But as Louis Torres says, you can give an excellent sermon but if you haven't given an appeal, it wasn't excellent. It wasn't a good sermon if you haven't included an appeal. And I've heard ministers, and I've done this. You, you preach your heart out, and then you sit down. Well, we need to be asking people to, for an appeal. We ought to be giving in that appeal and asking them to make a decision for Christ, for the distinctive Bible truth that we have as Seventh-day Adventists, we ought to be asking them for a decision each and every time that we preach. It doesn't mean they have to come to the altar every time, but they can stand up, they can raise their hand, they can bow their head in silent prayer. I have a handout uh, from Mark Finley that goes through seven different distinctive appeals, types of appeals. We can't do everything today. But if, if someone of you promised, say, we're going to be here five hours, I'd give you everything. But we, we, And then I couldn't do it. This is a big subject, and there's not enough about it. I'm thrilled that you're interested in appeals. How many of you today would like to raise your hand and say, I'm, I'm interested in giving better appeals? Amen? And please, tell your pastor this. So here it goes. There are 184 churches. This happens to be the Troy Church pictured here. But there's 184 churches within the Michigan Conference. What would happen? I don't think any of us really know. But what would happen, why don't we try what would happen, if each and every Sabbath for the next year, say beginning, the be beginning of July, there would be an appeal made for Christ, for a distinctive Bible truth, 
for the true church, for baptism, at the end of the pastor's or the elder's or the layperson's sermon, and that appeal was made from the heart, and there was at least one, just one person on average in each of those 184 churches that made a decision for Jesus that day. Now you might say our church only has 10 people coming. I believe with all my heart that if those 10 started hearing the pastor and you giving appeals every week, they'd say, you know what? I'm going to invite my friend because that may be their best chance to accept Jesus. And you might say, well, we need to accept the Sabbath. Yes, include that too. Include the Sabbath, the state of the dead, everything else. We We can give more appeals than anybody else, right? But if they accept Jesus in the context of the Seventh-day Adventist church on Sabbath morning, do you think those people will also be interested in coming back and learning more? So I did the math. 184 churches times 52 weeks, one decision every Sabbath on average in every church. Let's just say the church with 10 members, they had a decision every week. The church with... uh, 400 members, they had one decision every week. That'd be nearly 10,000 decisions in one year. And I believe we're lacking on decisions for Christ because we're hearing a lot of excellent messages, but we're not hearing enough appeals. And I can tell you this from pastors I speak to and from this pastor here, and when I did my doctoral degree on giving appeals, I can tell you this, we work hard, most pastors, I believe, I'll give them credit, on the sermon week by week, we better, because people come to church, first two big reasons they want to come to any church, Adventist or not, is because of the preaching. And if the preaching isn't good, they're not going to come back. They'll find another church, and if they don't find it there, they'll stop going to church. That's what the stats tell us. So the preaching better be good. But more than that, we also need to ask for appeals. Raise your hands, stand up, bow your head in silent prayer, make that decision for Jesus. Card appeal, come forward. There's a time for all of that. We're short on that, and so was I. We don't take enough time to write that out. Now, you have an appeal today and every day, and I promise that I will, if nothing else, I'll make time for that at the end. Uh, we'll skip by some really good stuff, and I'll just give you a an appeal, or I'll share an appeal with you. Um, But we need to start taking time for that, okay? So 9,568 new decisions for Jesus this year in the Michigan Conference. Wouldn't that be great? And if 20% of them were baptized, that'd be 2,000 baptisms in Michigan, and that would be about 300% more than we're getting now. I don't know, we're somewhere around 700, 800. Uh, a number of years back, about 10 years ago, we got close to 1,000 baptisms in a year. But even if, you, even if we were re- recording 1,000 a year, 2,000 baptisms out of 10,000 decisions, that'd be twice what we got in a high year. Amen? Amen. I think we could do it. How many of you think that? Amen. I believe it's possible. Uh, the Holy Spirit is just waiting to be put to work. And I believe we're in a, we are soldiers today. I walked down the hill with someone I'd never met. And uh, I'm, I'm sort of a shy guy, actually. 
And uh, I was hoping he'd say hi to me, but he was a good Adventist guy like me, and he wasn't saying hi. And I wasn't either, and I thought, this is ridiculous. I need to introduce myself. So I said, hi, how are you? My name is Dan Tower. And he said, hi, my name is Rob. Rob, uh, yes, that's all that matters. And uh, so I wrote the name down later. We sat together through the morning meeting. I found out he's been baptized just three years. He's met the Lord recently. He's an active member of the church. He used to go to a church that my daughter and her husband pastored when they were here in this conference. And I was thrilled. And I would have missed out if I wouldn't have asked him for his name. He gave me his name. I just simply asked. I could have walked down the rest of the hill and never found out who he was. Just said, hi, good morning. Or, you know, just been on my way like, like the Pharisee went by the, the guy in the ditch, you know, the Bible story. But I asked his name. If you ask for something, you're liable to get it. And what if you don't? If just one person per week in each church made a decision, I think that church of 10 people would soon be 20 or 30. Well, we've had prayer already, and I'm glad we had prayer. And those of you listening, pray about that in your church too. The science of soul winning and appeals, how to say it. We're going to get into some nuts and bolts. As my good friend Jason said this morning, you pray, you have your devotional life, but there's a time for nuts and and bolts too. Some of the nuts and bolts we're going to be learning from people who are not necessarily of our faith. I hope you'll forgive me for that, but there are some good people out there that we can learn from. uh, And there's a limit to what we can learn from them, obviously, but we're going to share some of that with you today. Our Lord calls for laborers who, feeling their own need of the atoning blood of Christ. Have you ever felt need for the atoning blood of Jesus? Enter upon their work, not with boasting or self-sufficiency, but with full assurance of faith, realizing that they will always need the help of Christ in order to know how to deal with minds. There's a science to winning a soul for Jesus. And so we need to put every effort we possibly can into it. Read Gospel Workers again, about page 140 to 160. It's full of excellent material on winning a soul for Christ. So here we go into some of the nuts and bolts. What should a speaker do who's preparing his message. What basics are included in a good gospel message? And I, I want to say this since we are um, covering a number of items today. I will try to be fair with you and give you a few minutes for some questions at the end, okay? Or talk with me personally. Um, there's a lot on our plate today, and we took some time with all these wonderful gifts that you received, right? Uh, So feel free to write down a question. We'll try to take time for that right after my appeal is over. The speaker will tell the audience clearly why the issue matters. He'll paint a bright picture of the good that will come from a positive decision for Christ or the Sabbath or, you know, our understanding of the state of the dead, whatever it might be. He will paint a bleak picture of the consequences of a rejection. That's legitimate. He would clearly outline the action that must be taken. That's why in our appeals, 
I've learned, I, I write out all my appeals. I write them out word for word. I follow that appeal. You'll probably won't get it word for word here because I may not have the time to go through seven to ten minutes plus the music, but if you have your appeal written out, you're liable to, you know, take the time to, to give it. And so you don't have to do the appeals that I've done, but you can take that as a template and write out your own appeal. And my urging is, yes, have a good sermon, but by all means, give an appeal. And then they'll wrap up with a memorable rallying cry. Now, this was from, I don't even remember after studying this, um, if this was a religious site or not. Maybe not. But there are people out there who know how to persuade other people because their dinner plate is dependent upon that. And there are some truths across the board, whether you're selling a product just in the secular world, like Warren Buffett, or whether you're a Billy Graham or a Mark Finley, that are true right across the board. We might as well learn it and accept that fact, and these are all true. Mark Finley has said in a book called Decisions Years Ago, or Persuasion rather, he said, mini-max. You minimize the consequences of doing right, and you max of, of uh, you, you minimize the negatives of a positive decision, and you maximize the positives of a positive decision. That's the way Finley put it in his book. And you know, it's interesting that in the secular world, they say you paint a bright picture of the positive, you paint a bleak picture of the negative. And this is what they said. Your audience deserves a stirring ending. Have you call portered? Any of you literature evangelists? Your audience. It might be an audience of one. They deserve a stirring ending. That's your appeal. But what do they call it in the literature evangelism ministry? I've been there too. I've done that. Um, what did they call that? Yeah, the close. The close. Yes, they deserve a stirring close or ending and will feel cheated if you let it down if you don't deliver. Have you ever thought of that? We uh, cheat people if we don't give an appeal. You put all that time and effort in, they're just waiting to respond. They are. They're waiting to respond. They're expecting, they've been working out in the secular world maybe all week long. And they're used to people asking them to respond. And they might be the sellers out in the secular world. They're asking for people to buy their product. Amen? You want people to buy what you have to sell? And it may be something they need. Something that can change their life. But yet the pastor gets up, the elder gets up, you give a good message, and there's no asking for a name, let alone giving an appeal, right? We need to make appeals. And here's George Whitefield from a couple centuries ago. Would ministers preach for eternity? They would then act the part of true Christian orators and not only calmly and coolly inform the understanding, that's the intellect, the brain, but by persuasive, pathetic, that means heartfelt address, endeavor to move the affections and warm the heart. We want to move people from where they're at to where they ought to go. Amen? Amen. 
Now, in your study guide, it asks you for a response. This is an early response. I'm going to ask you what words reach out to you in what George Whitefield, this great evangelist from 200 years ago, said in those last couple, three sentences. What words reach out to you and what would they do for your audience as you give a message? And what we, what's that? Eternity. Oh, eternity. Yes, yes. What else? Other responses? Endeavor to move. All right. Understanding. Understanding. They do it with understanding and warm, warm the heart. You know, messages that are just intellectual, and we as Seventh day Adventists can do more about that than anybody I know. Yeah, do we? How about the affections? How about the heart? Any, any other things? Be persuasive. Yeah, that word persuasive. We're in this to persuade people. Okay, very good. How? True. Act, act the part of true Christian orators. That's right. That's what we are for Christ. And Paul the Apostle and Mars Hill, he said, you know, I've determined to know nothing uh, except Jesus Christ among you. And Paul could argue a point better than anybody else. I guess he learned that lesson on Mars Hill. But we need to reach the heart. We need to be persuasive. We need to move the affections. We need to get people sometimes out of their seat to come forward. Yes, indeed. Uh, how about this? This is a growing burden of mine. People don't need a long discourse. Um, you need to be timely. Listen to this from third volume of Testimonies, page 419. You frequently talk too long when you do not have the vitalizing influence of the Spirit of Heaven. You weary those who hear you. Many make a mistake in their preaching in not stopping while the interest is up. They go on speechifying. I don't know if I've ever heard that word in Ellen White's vocabulary before. But she said, you go on speechifying until the interest that had risen in the minds of the hearers dies out and the people are really wearied with the words of no special weight or interest. Stop before you get there. Stop when you have nothing of special importance to say. Do not go on with dry words that only excite prejudice and do not soften the heart. The can't wait world, comment. In the sales world, they call that overselling. <laughs> okay, in the sales world, be overselling. When you reach that point, know your audience. There's so much we could say here. We'll wait for most, but that was, that was good. That was good, Ron. We need to know when to stop. Charles Spurgeon, one of the great Christian orators of the last, uh, well, two centuries ago, the 19th century, if you ask me how you may shorten your sermons, I should say, study them better. Sometimes you say the same thing twice, you know, and more. We are generally longest when we have least to say. Some fail. This is Testimonies, Volume 4, page 261. 
Some fail of success because they trust to the strength of argument alone. And they do not cry earnestly to God for his wisdom to direct them and his grace to sanctify their efforts. Long discourses, and I think that's uh, uh, within your study guide. That means that there's a word there to fill in. Um, Search for it. That's what I meant when I wrote this out anyway. Anyway, here, here we go. Long discourses and tedious prayers are positively injurious to a religious interest and fail to carry conviction to the consciences of the people. Very, very important that we, uh, that we not over-speak. If you can, let, let me move on. We'll, we're going to carry this uh, through for about 15 more minutes. You, you can never win an argument. What to do instead of arguing? How about building relationships instead of breaking them down? And sometimes our discourses sound quite argumentative, and that's not going to reach the heart. We have to have that appeal. William Gladstone, the Prime Minister of the United Kingdom, said, men are apt to mistake the strength of their feeling for the strength of their argument. The heated mind resents the chill touch and the relent relentless scrutiny of logic. Now, this is Barry Black. He's the U.S. Senate chaplain. He's a Seventh-day Adventist minister. Without the Holy Spirit, you are not going to accomplish anything. Do you agree? Amen. Ask the Holy Spirit to go before you to make this message live. Is the message going to live without the Holy Spirit in it? No, it won't. It is critically important that a preacher not try to use the Holy Spirit. We need to trust the Holy Spirit to have His way and to realize that the Spirit manifests Himself in different ways. But while the Spirit blows where He wants to, we have to learn how to set the sail. Now, what would that mean? What does it mean we have to learn how to set the sail? Yeah. Educate yourself as to how to catch, uh, how to set the sail, how to be most efficient. And that's what this class is all about. And you know what? I wrote it because I have a burden to share it with others, so I have a burden to learn it myself. I feel like I'm still learning. Yeah, so we need to learn how to set the sail. And this man, he really doesn't know how to do that. I'd encourage you to uh, look him up and listen to some of his preaching. It's important to learn how to ride the wind. Let the Holy Spirit use you. C.D. Brooks, when you feel that you are responsible for how people respond, you are actually taking on a responsibility that is not yours. Our responsibility as preachers is to give our hearers an opportunity to do what? Respond. That's our responsibility. To give our hearers an opportunity to respond. We preach so long, they don't have an opportunity to respond. And so we have not fulfilled our responsibility. What happens in the heart of the hearer is between that person and God. And he said, if you give an invitation for Christ, for people to accept him, and no one responds, don't feel bad. Maybe everyone is saved already. Don't be afraid to give an invitation. How many of you have ever been afraid to give an invitation? I'll raise my hand. I've been afraid. It's a fearful thing. And so you can dream up any reason, maybe the clock or whatever, to, you don't want to mess it up. 
with a failed invitation. But C.D. Brooks said, don't worry about that. You know what? If the Holy Spirit knows you're going to be making an appeal every time you get up there, do you think the Holy Spirit can begin working ahead of time? You can tell people at the beginning, I'm going to be making an appeal for a decision today. And they would be thinking about that the whole time. This is from Haddon Robinson. He said, don't open your sermon with an apology. This is also another point that's very, very important. When we use an apology, we hope to win sympathy, but at best we get pity. A congregation is seldom persuaded by someone for whom they feel sorry. If you open up your message with an apology, what will people think about that whole message? It's not good. They'll be thinking about that poor man, that poor woman. I feel so sorry for them. They will have pity on you. They will, mess, they will miss your message and they will not be directed to receive it, nor will they feel like. They won't feel like accepting it. So let's stay away from that if we possibly can. Someone else said, get things out of your sermon. You have to write out, I encourage you to write out your sermons because you, you get up front and you, you have a default system that brings you back to using words that you use in your limited vocabulary oftentimes. The word things is nonspecific. Your sermon time is to be specific. Uh, you need to use compelling words, such as instead of saying state three things for Christian discipleship, state three requirements for Christian discipleship. Share five, not things, but benefits of forgiving people who have wronged you. Describe the dynamics of a healthy church. Explain the signs of true conversion. Present three principles to practice for loving your spouse. Warn of the dangers of living selfishly. And then another. Nothing kills a sermon like beginning with an apology. As a general rule, if the sermon merits an apology, it doesn't merit preaching. Enough said there, I guess. The bottom line is, if you feel the need to offer a naked, this is just my opinion. That's another thing to avoid, by the way. This is just my opinion. Don't say that. What follows probably is not worth offering anyway. They're not going to listen to that. Well, it's just his opinion. Unless you have a lot of change in your pocket and they respect you already. Why should they listen to just your opinion? They didn't come just to listen to your opinion. There's one thing worse than saying, in conclusion, it's going on without concluding. And don't copy others. Be original enough to write it out. Don't go to the internet and just print out a sermon. Uh, it might be Mark Finley's sermon. It might be a great sermon. I tried it once. I was impressed by a sermon Dwight Nelson gave 30 years ago. I was so impressed by that. I was so blessed by that. I got up the next Sabbath morning in my church, and you know what? Someone else already heard that. Yeah. <laughs> it's about the Trojan horse. I mean, that was dramatic. It was wonderful. And I thought, you know what? People are not only going to like the message, but they're going to like me. And I, I did try that that one time, and I thought, you know what? That one person ruined it for me. I thought, no one else is going to be listening. This is 30-some years ago. They, they were, even then. And it's even more dangerous today. You can't copy Dwight or Mark. You have to put your time in, right? Okay. Evangelism 
304, when in your discourses you denounce with bitter sarcasm that which, that which you wish to condemn, you sometimes offend your hearers and their ears are turned from hearing you further. Carefully avoid any severity of speech that might give offense to those you desire to save from error, for it will be difficult to overcome the feelings of antagonism thus aroused. If you will weed out the tares or the weeds from your discourses, your influence for good will be increased. You want people to love the message. And we need to be as stirring as John the Baptist, but we need to do it with the love of Jesus in our heart. So I say uplift Jesus, uplift the cross all you possibly can. Always uplift the cross. Learn from other great preachers. The Lord will make you a great preacher too. It may not be before the 10,000, but you know, preach like it before the three or the five or the 100 that the Lord has blessed you with. All these people have in common that they are some of the most beloved living preachers within the Seventh-day Adventist church today. I, for me, it just I thought, well, what are the top 10 that I can think of? I probably could have thought of others. I think there's 10 names there. And uh, we can learn from them. And to me, the, the one that gives the best appeals of all is Mark Finley. Uh, you may have other, other opinions, but let's learn from these men. But we don't have to copy them. The Holy Spirit will give you a distinctive message that only Joe can preach. You know, that only Sal can preach. You'll, you'll reach people that these other men will never have the opportunity of reaching. Now this is, I, I hope that this worked out. I want to uh, give just a couple minutes to Mark here. I know it's on my computer and you may not hear it. I wish there was a mic. That was an apology, wasn't it? Listen to Mark anyway. <laughs> He wasn't at the beginning. Lakefront Drive in Fountain City. In 1871, he was doing extremely. Yeah. Okay. Well, I'm not going to apologize, folks. I just told you not to do that. <laughs> yeah. Was that from last night? It was from Saturday night. I've had my tech technology issues here. That in the midst of his deepest darkness and his heaviest burden, that Jesus was there to strengthen him. Because he understood that through the presence of the Holy Spirit, God was there to give him the strength that he needed. Okay. This man recognized it was the story of Sankey's singing evangelist who lost his family and he wrote the hymn, It Is Well With My Soul. Remember that story on Saturday night? How did he get through it? He recognized the Holy Spirit was there with him. We're just going to go on. We, we don't need the pictures, but the most powerful illustrations are the ones from your personal experience that people can relate to from their personal experience. Your, your personal stories are powerful, and those personal stories will change hearts. And so I would like for you to 
consider that. Illustrations can make us laugh. They can make us weep. They can do all those kinds of things because we, we've, gone, we've gone through that experience. It's like if you go to Mackinac City, you're going to buy a t-shirt. Well, other people, maybe they've run the Chicago Marathon or maybe they've been to the Grand Canyon. You can, you can tell a story about your personal experience. I was at the Grand Canyon and uh, we, we watched out over there and I couldn't believe it was five miles across to the rock on the other side. But it was, it was, it was a mile deep. And just to be there was the most amazing event of my life, you could say. Did you know God's love for you is deep, it is wide? It's the most amazing thing that will ever happen to you. It's better than the Grand Canyon ever could be. You know, you can make a story from an experience that you've had. And if people feel it in their hearts, because you feel it in your heart, they're going to identify with that. And that story might make someone laugh, and it may make someone cry because of their memory of their unique experience over there. And they have the T-shirt to prove it, that they've been there. I have that T-shirt. Now, you're going to tell me you've actually been there, right? Okay, good. Okay, and you have the T-shirt to prove it. So in your illustrations, I would say this also. Be true, be modest, and don't violate a confidence. Don't violate a confidence. You might know a great story, but don't take for granted that person, whoever it may be, would appreciate you sharing it. At least be careful uh, not to give that away. Okay. Yes, I saw a hand. We'll, then we'll go on. Yeah. Right, right down. Yeah. And uh, right moment, when you're preparing your sermon, illustrations, you know, illustrations. Yeah. Write down your experiences, uh, go to that photo album, uh, write down other experiences, and so forth. Let me tell you a true story. Uh, He was 11 years of age. In fact, he was eight. He was eight years of age. He went to vacation Bible school again, loved to go to VBS. And uh, that very first day, the teacher said, children, we're going to memorize the Ten Commandments this week, all ten of them. And so the little boy, he went home. There were 15 verses to memorize. He memorized the Ten Commandments word for word. He was eight years old. He had never read through the commandments before. He got a little New Testament book that week. And uh, he, he went back home and he said, Mommy, he says, After looking at the calendar, he said, how come we go to church on Sunday when the commandment says the seventh day is the Sabbath? And his mommy looked at him and said, Daniel, she said, we go to church on Sunday because Jesus rose from the dead on that day. And so the little boy thought and said, wow, okay, my mommy loves Jesus. If it's good enough for her, it's good enough for me. 
But over the next three years, he asked that same question two more times. Mommy, why do we go to church on Sunday when the commandment says the seventh day is the Sabbath? Got the same answer. When that young man was 11 years of age, his very dear and consecrated mom passed away. And the night after her funeral, he asked that same question to his grandmother and to his aunt. Why do I go to church on Sunday when the commandment says the seventh day is the Sabbath? And they said, Danny, we're not going to tell you. Your mother was buried today. And I was upset. I said, I'm not going to go to bed until you tell me. And so they opened their Bibles. They were Seventh-day Adventist Christians. And they could have lost me there, but they decided we're going to open the Bible. And all they did was from their heart. I knew they loved me. They could get away with this. I knew they loved me. And I needed love. From Genesis to Revelation, they gave the most wonderful one-and-a-half-hour Bible study on the Sabbath being the seventh day of the week I've ever heard in all my life. I wish it had been recorded. They just went from one scripture to the next to the next, and I listened enthralled. I was convinced right then and there that the seventh day really was the Sabbath, even though I'd gone to church every Sunday of my life. And you know, as we hand out the decision card tonight, we have to pretend a little bit, right? <laughs> I want to invite you now as we go through these four points on that card. The first one is, I understand from the Bible that the seventh day is the Sabbath. The next one is, because I love Jesus, I would like to keep that seventh day Sabbath, which is Saturday. The third point on the card is, I would like more information. And the fourth I'm going to ask you for is just simply write your name and your address there, your phone number. We'll get back with you. And you may want to check that last square, actually. It says, I would like more information. And so the piano usually will be playing. And we ask people at this point for a decision on a card, and they make that decision. And that's what we do. And that's the, that's the handout that you have in, in some detail. Uh, there's other things that are on here that um, will be valuable to you, of course. Uh, getting back to our presentation, rhetorical triangle, you can read that. You want credibility. You want to know your message. That's the logos, the logic, the word. Pathos, that's your appeal. It's all very important. Okay. Well, I, I'm... I want to make sure I had time for that. Do, do you have any questions about the appeal itself? <clears throat> yes, Ernie. I've heard many appeals, and sometimes they have so many things that they're appealing to that you don't know exactly what you're doing. You yeah, you're I'm glad you brought that up. <laughs> That's the advantage of a card appeal. But especially if you're not giving a card appeal, I would urge you to write out every single thing uh, that you want to say and verbally read 
I've read my appeals. Verbally read that appeal and make sure that it's very clear what you're asking them to do. In, in my appeal, I'm asking them to, to put a check mark down if they're willing to say, I believe the Bible teaches the seventh day is the Sabbath, and I would like to keep that day holy. You know, that's very direct. And I usually read, I always read through that card twice so that people will know what they're responding to. And it's not the last time we'll go over that distinctive truth. We have another appeal that I'll share tomorrow on the change of the Sabbath. There's more to the story. But we have all these appeals that need to be clearly defined. Good point. Is there another? Well, let me go back to you, uh, Steve. Maybe it was... Do you remember what you were going to ask well, a little I was earlier? I going to ask you about the, the tedious prayer. The tedious? Yes. When okay. You say, when you say tedious prayer, does he mean like long-winded? Or, or well, were, you, were you saying like small? Well, tedious would be long-lasting. It just goes on and on. That's what Ellen White was referring to there. Uh, she was making an appeal that we don't over-preach ourselves to the point of, you know, the people are getting weary. And I, I've heard prayers, you probably have too, well-meaning and, and wonderful people, good Christian people, uh, their prayers, their public prayers go on for five minutes. That's too long. It's not, it's not well, necessary. Well, there's also, a, 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 the thing I was going to refer to, there's also a scripture in the Bible that talks about prayers that, that could have been along with that. Um, there, there, there's one that says, um, I can't remember the exact scripture, but um, I, I've read it before, that talks about like long-winded prayers and then like shorter prayers. Like, the shorter prayers are sometimes more meaningful than, than the longer prayers. Mm -hmm. Yes, uh, I had a, a two-word prayer as I was going at 40 miles per hour toward a head-on collision. Uh, it was Jesus saved me, three words. Yeah. Jesus saved me, like that. That's all I had time to say. Jesus saved me. And was that a meaningful prayer? Yes. Now, I could have gone on. I, there was no one else to tire. You know, no one else was in the vehicle, praise God. But it was a very short but very heartfelt prayer. Yes, and the Lord did save me. Yes, Louise? Mm -hmm. such a small church. And a lot of times you can even, if you didn't have a card, you can even just ask if you believe Jesus is coming again and, or just yeah. make it a general... It can be a general appeal. It doesn't have to be a card appeal. I have appeals where I just ask people to raise their hand. But as a pastor, I'm going to be looking out. I'm going to have someone stationed there. I'm going to say, Austin, you're the deacon in my church. You start, you probably were back in the day, but anyway, you, you look over the crowd and you see that hand raised up. I want to know, I may miss the hand. Maybe Mervyn has raised his hand. Maybe he wants to accept Christ. And so, you know, we're, gonna, we're going to track that. In the next week, follow it up. Follow it up with a visit. A very general appeal, raising the hand, standing up. You know, these are all indicators as you give appeals, be consistent because people will, in your audience will begin to expect that 
and it will be a reason for them to, uh, to invite people to church. And by the way, that will make you more of an evangelist, and you won't be, when you do preach about the Sabbath, even the mark of the beast, you'll have some credibility, and you'll have people coming to your church already that love you, and you've visited in their homes and so forth. Let me tell you something about appeals in the home. We have found out in evangelism that if we can get into a home five times, maybe I can tell you more about this uh, later on this week, the, the percentage of yes toward baptism goes up way high. The, the more invitations a person hears in a more compacted time frame, that's the goodness of public evangelism, the more that appeal is going to make a difference. And you need public evangelism every so often because the Lord and the Spirit have been working on a number of people and they get it once a week on Sabbath, maybe twice a week if they come to prayer meeting. But they're, they're, maybe they're getting Bible studies, maybe they are not. But in the course of about six weeks, if they come steady through a series of meetings, they can respond and respond and respond again and again and again, and it makes them ripe for the Holy Spirit to work upon their heart. And so public evangelism is very crucial in that way. And that's as good of a reason as I can think of for public evangelism, because these people, they, they have a concentrated overview but as you preach, preach Christ. You see, all, all year long, if you're giving an appeal every week, you can have some foundational salvation sermons that anybody could agree with. Now, I'm not saying preach Baptist sermons in an Adventist church. We need Adventist sermons in an Adventist church. But, but we can preach some messages that are not so hard-hitting, concentrated, as like the mark of the beast, and you can prepare those people for, for later. You have a year to work with them. You can think, hey, we're going to start giving appeals every week in church. We don't have to wait for September 23 and Jesus on prophecy. Amen? I saw someone else's hand. Yeah. Yeah. With the Jesus on prophecy seminar, the pastors indicated that people in the area have heard the message multiple times and they'll come, but no one has been making decisions for an expanse of time. I'm wondering, appeals in that setting, does that mean that we really need to push harder with the appeal? What was, what, uh, if you have a percentage of people that are coming, but decisions aren't, aren't resulting, at least in the past. Okay. Well, I would need to know more about the particulars there, but I would say sometimes we err and we don't combine personal evangelism with public evangelism. Ellen White said, our efforts have only begun in the pulpit. We need to get into the homes, and we need to be personable with people. And it doesn't matter to me if a person makes a decision for Jesus in the public auditorium or at church or in the privacy of their home. But my question would be, have have those people been visited? Are they part of a small group? Are they part of a regular Bible study? Uh, do they have friends within the church? Are they part of a Sabbath school class? Or, or are they just coming uh, maybe and they've been hearing messages? Maybe they haven't been followed up. We call visitation in the home follow-up. 
it's very important that we get into the home every week. Uh, I remember when I was working with you guys over in Holland, uh, there was someone, uh, uh, I wish I could remember the name offhand, five years ago already, but Pastor Hall and I got into this, his home every single week, and he, he was baptized. He wasn't baptized immediately, but within the course of the next few months, he was baptized. Uh, but, but he was getting visited all the time. And, and he was not an easy sell, so to speak, but he needed that personal touch. Um, maybe we can jibber-jabber around, around that and we can figure out the name there. But anyway, Dan? I have Bible study, and uh, I'm the kind of guy that gives, I'm just too soft, you know, I like to really give people a chance, chance. Mm -hmm. We spent two years with this woman, and she accepted everything, all the doctrines. Yeah. She went to a big Baptist church. She was in a choir. And I wanted to give her James 4, 17. And for whom the Lord said it was good, you know, he was saying. But I was scared to, okay, until yeah. the very end. Yeah. And finally we asked her, we said, Josephine, says, why, why are we hesitating? Because we were there two years, now, not every week. Yeah. She was sick for a while, but she went through all the lessons. And she looked at us and she said, because I have to change my lifestyle. Mm. Now, she was the woman that would go to her pastor when she found out about the Sabbath and ask him, and then he'd tell her, you know, ask him about the Jews. Mm -hmm. You know, we'd go back and forth and we'd answer all her questions okay, yeah. according to the Bible. And she accepted. She accepted. She knew the Sabbath was on Saturday. Yeah. She knew all the, the doctrines that we went through, the death, everything. All uh -huh. the and yet she said, I would have to change my life. So was it, was it about? Saddest, it was the yeah. saddest thing I've ever heard. Yeah. There's value in knowing why. And if you sense that she's your friend and she knows that you're a friend, a Christian friend, you can ask that question. You've got the credibility. Go ahead and ask it. In, in the context of leading her toward decisions, then you'll know what to pray about. You will know how to manage that visitation week by week. There's someone that we're working with right now on a personal basis. Uh, they understand, we found out, much of what we believe as a people. They believe under, and understand most of it. Not that we will shortchange them on that. But, you know, uh, we also know what the issue is. So we're going to go to the issue, and we're going to start studying about that issue. Recently, I asked uh, another gentleman, I, I have a, num a number of uh, personal Bible studies going, and I, I presume that this person, it, they understood from the Bible this particular issue. It's a pretty big issue with us as a people. I presumed with this person going to church that they understood that. I took it for granted. I finally figured out the Spirit spoke to my mind and said, you know what, this person may not believe what the Bible says about that. I asked them, I asked them, I said, in this way, I said, I, I sense, and that's a key word in giving an appeal. And you'll hear Mark Finley say that. If you haven't noticed in the past, he'll say, do you sense the Spirit of God leading you or whatever. So I said, I sense that you would really appreciate 
a Bible study on this particular topic. And he said, I would. I really don't understand what the Bible says about it. I went back there. It was a two-week delay because I had to be in Colorado for a while. I went back in two weeks, and his heart was completely different about what the Bible said. For the first time, that individual said to me, I believe God wants me to do this. And we didn't even have the first Bible study yet. He just knew it was coming up. We prayed about it, and you can believe he started praying about it. First time he ever said, you know, I believe this is what God wants me to do. Not what Dan wants him to do. This is what God wants me to do. So there's a science to this. And it goes on and on. And remember the first picture we had from Acts, I think it was Acts of the Apostles. Let's see. I think it was Gospel Workers. Uh, if I'm not mistaken, it wasn't. Yeah, it was on the screen, but it wasn't in your notes. We'll always have to ask Jesus. We'll always have to ask Jesus' help in learning how to deal with minds, right? Well, our time is up. I'm going to have prayer. And then if you want to stay by for longer, uh, that's fine. Okay? Let's bow our heads as we pray. Father in heaven, we want to thank you again that we could be here today. Lord, there's so much... And yet, we pray for the Holy Spirit to teach us what we need to know, to give us a sense of how we can be better soul winners, how we can be better presenters, better Christian orators. I pray, Lord, that it will be within our hearts to make good appeals. As our heads are bowed, as our eyes are closed, I want to ask again, how many here would sincerely say, Lord, we're going to ask you to raise your hand, make me a soul winner. Would that be the prayer of your heart? Would you raise your hand if that's where you're at with Jesus? Amen. Thank you, Lord. Every possible opportunity helps to give appeals, personal and public, and help us to always respond to your Holy Spirit leading in our life. In Jesus' name, amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.